not used to all the bells and whistles. But we're going to get started tonight. If you have your Bibles, we'll be in Romans chapter 11. We are near the end of this chapter, although we have uh, we've slowed our pace down just a little bit. We are in the last part of it as Paul is coming to this, uh, the close of this great doctrine of salvation and justification and everything he's labored so far. Uh, he's come to the end of it, and we have picked up in uh, the last three chapters, this is, or the last three verses of this chapter is kind of where we've read through uh, the last few services, but then we went through and did a verse at a time. And, and the reason that this is important is because we continue to go back to our equation of theology equals doxology. The more that you know about God, the more that you know His Word, the more that worship flows out of your soul. And and this is what you're seeing, is that Paul has brought back to remembrance everything that he has written that God has allowed him to write through the leadership of the Spirit. And he comes to these last three verses, or four verses here, and his heart is overwhelmed with worship. His heart has burst into doxology. He is overwhelmed. Paul is not this, uh, you know, I'm just I'm kind of excited. This is, this is kind of good stuff. And No, his heart is overwhelmed with what God has revealed through the Spirit. And these last few verses are the doxology of the whole previous... Uh, everything that he's mentioned up to this point comes to the conclusion here. So let's read verse 33 through verse 36, and we're just going to spend the night dissecting verse 35. Let's start in verse 33. It says, Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became His counselor or, what has or who has first given to Him that it might be paid back to Him again. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. I know we've prayed once tonight, but let's pray over this word, and then we will go to dive into this text. Lord, we thank You that there's not a, a certain number of prayers that we can offer to You in a certain amount of time. God, You tell us to pray without ceasing. And God, we thank You for that open invitation to come to Your throne Lord, let us always remember to whom we're speaking. And Lord, let us remember who we are. Lord, we pray that you would open your word to our eyes tonight, into our hearts, into our ears, into our souls. Lord, these are your words. They're not ours. And Lord, we can only understand these through your spirit. So we ask for the spirit. We ask for the helper. We ask for the teacher to come and quicken our souls. And make your word alive and active in our lives. We ask these things in your name. Amen. All right. I want to show you something interesting here in these last few verses. That in verse 33, we see that Paul uses two sentences that end with exclamation points. Then we come down to verse 34 and 35. Then he comes and hits us with two question marks. 
And then in verse 36, he has two emphatic statements that end with period. That Paul is laying this doxology out. The first section of exclamation points, he was overjoyed and enthralled by the glory and the, the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And then last week, the last service we were together, we had looked at the first question. For who's known the mind of the Lord, or who has become his counselor? We know that that answer is a emphatic, no one can counsel God. And then we come to the second question of this section that we are going to talk about tonight. It says this in verse 35. Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? Now we can do this the long way or the short way. I could say the answer to that question is no one who has another prayer request will close in prayer. Because that's as simple as that answer gets. Who has ever given something to God that God would then owe you or then be indebted to repay you? That sounds crazy. What could you ever bring this God? What could you ever bring to him that he does not have? What could you ever bring to him? That's the question, that he would repay you back. In a sense, what this section is, what Paul is asking is this. Who has ever done anything or brought anything to this God, the God that we just talked about in the previous verses, the God we've read about all through Romans, who could bring anything to this God where God would then be indebted to you? That God would then owe you something because you gave something to him. To ask that question is to answer that question. God owes us nothing. And until we can come to that realization, we could never truly understand the beauty of his gospel. He owes no human being nothing. In the book of Acts chapter 17, Paul tells us this. It, it's on one of your handouts here, um, but it says this in Acts 17 verses 24 through 25 when he is standing on Mars Hill, as he is just giving this beautiful answer to who God is, he says this, The God who made the world in all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, he does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life, and breath, and all things. By the very name of who he is, God, tells us that he needs nothing. God does not need anything from us. And we have never given anything to him where God would then owe us. That's the point of what Paul is going to make. This is a crazy question, but you would be surprised how many times in your life or my life, whether it be in things that we have went through, situations that we're going through now, looking at salvation, whatever the case may be, I bet if you stick with me long enough that as we begin to give examples of what this looks like and how crazy it is, I bet you may find yourself in some of these situations. That God owes you something. Does God owe you anything? He doesn't owe you anything. Does he owe you grace? Does he owe you mercy? Does he owe you the next breath? For human beings to look up to this God 
and say, you owe me this because I've done this for you is absolutely about as arrogant as a human being can be. But if you are in the NASB Bible, in verse 35, you will see that it is all capital letters. That this is all capitalized because Paul is quoting from the Old Testament. And he quotes two passages from the book of Job. So let's go there to really get to the point of what Paul's trying to say in this text. Because you know as well as I do the three rules to understanding the Bible. When you begin to exegete the Bible, when you begin to look at the Bible, there are three rules that you must take into mind. Number one, context. The second one is equally as important. Context. And the third one is as equally as important as the first two. It is context. Just like with a business, it's location, location, location. When you read the Word of God, it is context, context, and context. So as Paul comes to this doxology, as he begins to uh, lay out this question to us, his mind is going back to the Old Testament. And his mind is going back to the book of Job. And he's going to give us two sections in the book of Job. The first one is in chapter 35. The second one is in chapter 41. And we have to look at the context of those passages to understand what Paul is trying to say here in the ending of Romans 11. Well, here's what we know. Paul quotes from Job 35, but in verse or chapter 31, we see the, the manifestation of what is happening. And here's basically what's happening in a nutshell. That Job thinks that what God has allowed to come into his life, if you will, the, the punishment does not fit the crime. Paul, or Paul is going back to Job because in this text, in Job 31 and on through there, Job asks these questions and he begins to ponder, God, if I was this righteous man, God, if I didn't do anything majorly uh, sinful in your eyes, if I was upstanding in your sight, and then why is this happening to me? I can see that if the ungodly, if they were living like that, then maybe that would be a reason for you to inflict this on them, but not me. Why my kids? Why my house leveled? Why did my children die? Why did my house get leveled? Why did I lose this? Why do I have boils? Why do I have sores? God, this doesn't seem right because I've lived pretty doggone well for you. That's what Job is saying here. He is He's declaring that he's innocent of these sinful actions that would merit this response of God in his life. He's asserted that, that this innocence that he has, are not the, the things that he's done in life, that they don't merit what God is giving him. In a sense, what he's saying is this, God, I've given you obedience. You owe me better than this. God, I've been faithful to you, and now you owe me this. What's the point of even being righteous, he begins to, to ponder. Why be righteous? If I'm righteous and this happens, if I'm not righteous and that happens, what does it matter? And then in between chapter 31, all the way up to chapter 35, we see his friends come and they start to reprove him and rebuke him. And they begin to counsel him. And in chapter 35, we see one of his friends says he sharply reproves Job. Listen to this context. 
in Job 35. We're going to read all the way down to verse 7 so you can get an understanding of what's going on and why Paul mentions this in the text we read from Romans. Then Elihu continued and said, Do you think that this is according to justice? Do you say my righteousness is more than God's? For you say, what advantage will it be to you? What profit will I have more than if I had sinned? That's what he's saying. Listen, if all this happened because I was upright, what's the point? If I would have lived upright or if I'd have sinned, there's no difference. This is what Job's analogy is. This is what his point is in what he's, what's leading up to this response. He says, I will answer you and your friends with you. Look at the heaven and see. Behold the clouds, they are higher than you. If you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him? And if your transgressions are many, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? That's the first time that Paul quotes from Job. He says, listen, if you are righteous in your own eyes, and you bring that to God, tell me what he owes you. You could live whatever you think is the best life in your own merit, and you don't think that God knows what he's doing, and God now owes you because you've been faithful in this aspect of life, or you've been faithful in this, so therefore God owes you these temporal blessings in life. He owes you the goodness of life. He owes you to never have a problem in life. He doesn't, you don't allow hardships in your life because we've done this for God. That's what Job's saying. And now his friend says, listen, if you're righteous, what do you give him? Or what does he receive from your hand? How many times in our life, or even in the modern church, do we think that God absolutely needs us? Like God is so dependent on us. And we see this even in the salvation call, the salvation message that is being presented in churches across the world today. We've, we've talked about this several times, so I won't spend a lot of time on it. But what do we hear the altar call goes out, and we say this, Oh, please, God is up here with his arms outstretched, and he needs you so bad. You're breaking his heart. He, he can't live without you. This is the world, the word that goes out. God is desperately pleading. He's so desperate, and he wants, he, just come, please. He, he can't do anything about it. Come on, please. God needs you. God needs nothing from no one. That's why mercy is amazing. And that's why grace is amazing. What have you ever done that God would owe you anything? We don't have to think very long about that. He owes me nothing. Nothing I could do that I would come to him and say, now God, you owe me this. This is what Job is dealing with in this text. His friend says, Job, even if you're righteous like you think you are, what do you bring to God? Do you think God needs you? Do you we just read in Acts 17, he needs nothing from no one. He doesn't need that Job. You're not doing him a favor, Job. How dare you think that God is unfair, Job. That's the first time he mentions that text in Romans 11. He mentions there in Job 35, verse 7, what I just read. The next time he mentions it is in 
Job 41, where we come across this mysterious beast, the Leviathan. Now, we're not going to get into that, but you can look all across at different commentaries and different beliefs. There are different just thoughts on that. Some will say the crocodile, or some will say a, a big shark, or some will say a big a, 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 a sea creature. Some will say it's a mythological something or another. There's all kinds of things that get put into this text. But here's the main point of the text. This is a monstrous sea creature that has so much more power and might than Job. That's the context. We don't have to know the specifics of the animal, but what God is going to do here is he's going to show Job just how small he is. That Job wants the control over his life. He thinks that he's merited better. He thinks that his, his good deeds have, have, have not caused or should not have caused this that has happened in his life. Maybe he's questioning God. We know he's questioned God because he has continued to say, God, where are you at? God, God, God. And now in chapter 38, all the way through chapter 41, it is the longest section in Scripture where God continues to speak. This is the longest continuation of God speaking in the whole Bible. You know what that tells me? That Job chapter 38 through Job chapter 41 are important. This is the, this is the longest that God has spoken in His Word. And it's to Job. And we know that Job is told to stand up like a man. Why God answers him, and his answers are in the form of questions. We mentioned this a little bit on Sunday night. Job, do you know where, you, or I, where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the world? You were there with me, right? I didn't see you. I must have missed you. Do you know? I, I, I don't know. I, I must have missed you when I spoke the world into existence, Job. He begins to show Job that in his absolute ignorance of these questions, how small he is. And in chapter 38 through chapter 41, Job is being humbled and put into his place. The creature is being put into the place due his position to the Creator. And now in chapter 41, God is going to use the Leviathan. And then uh, Paul is going to mention Verse 11 from this text in what we just read, and you'll see how it lays out. Listen to this in Job 41. He's asking Job this. He says, can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook? Can you go, Job, can you go down there and this monstrous creature, can you, can you go out there and just, just draw him out with a fish hook? Just take your little string, your little rope, and, or your little, whatever it is you're using, your little, just your homemade hook, and you just go into the sea there, and you just go wrangle this beast, and just take your, little, take your little rope there and just pull him in. You can do that, right? You got this, Job. Or press down his tongue with a cord. Not only do I want you to go to this, this beast, not do I want you to go to this animal, I want you to then rip its mouth wide open, And press down his tongue with a cord. Can you do that, Job? Can you do that? You know what? I don't even want to go near a snapping turtle's mouth. Let alone the Leviathan. Can you do that? We've seen a couple sharks on the beach. When we have went to the beach, they've, ca they've caught some. Little bitty ones. And let me tell you this. I keep a safe distance. Do you know what I would never do? Hey, come here, buddy. Just take my hands, put it in his mouth, open it up. Let me just play with your tongue a little bit. Let me tie some cords around it. 
That's a little bitty shark. And Job is saying, being asked, this Leviathan, this massive creature, can you tame it? Can you catch it? Can you open its mouth? Can you compress its tongue? Can you do this, Job? Or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many supplications to you? Or will he speak to you soft words? Will he then, Job, will he then turn his, his hostility and then begin to just be kind to you? And really have an infatuation with you, Job. And he's so amazed by your power, Job, that he's just going to just come and just do whatever you ask him to do, Job. Is that how it goes? Will he make a covenant with you? Will you take him for a servant forever? Can you take this wild beast and can you tame him and you make him be at your beck and call? Can you make him do anything that you want to do? Can you rip this massive beast out of the water and can you do with him whatever you please? See, I know that the answers to these are no, and so does Job. These aren't questions that Job's like, let me think, let me think about that. Now, say it again. Let me, hear your, let me actually hear the order of your words. Let me see if I can make this actually true. Job is just getting lower and lower, and God is getting higher and higher. And you're going to see this because this is the verse that Paul records in Romans 11.35, you have to see the context. Will you play with him as with a bird? You're going to go play with him, set him on your shoulder, teach him some good words. This is what you're going to do to this massive creature. Or will you bind him for your maidens? Not only will you take him as your servant, but will you make him the servant of your servants? You see, it just continues to build. Will the traders bargain over him? Will they divide him among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with the harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hand on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. He's like, he's saying, listen, if you laid your hand on him once, you wouldn't forget it. It would be the end. You won't do it again. Look at verse 10. Or verse 9, I'm sorry. Behold, your expectation is false. Job how insane is the thought that you could do what I just asked you if you could do? Your expectation is false. What you think is true is false. You can't do this. You have no control over this single beast in the water. It says, will you be laid low even at the sight of him? Now he goes even deeper. He says, Job, don't even think about that you could tame him. Don't even think that you could do all these things that I've mentioned to him. But here's the reality, Job. At the very side of him, you hit the ground in fear. If this beast stood right in front of you, Job, your heart would stop in fear because of the massive power that this creature has. Can you control him, Job? No. What he's trying to show is this. If Job doesn't have power over this creature, how could he think that he would have any control over the creator of this creature? Job, you can't even handle this. How are you going to handle me? How dare you think you can control me? 
if the sight of this animal drops you to your face in fear, how much more the glimpse of me? You see, Job is going down and God is going up. Look what he says in verse 10. No one is so fierce that he dares to arouse him. No one in their right mind would even come and try to provoke this creature. But you, Job, and you, O oh man, this is what we do to God. We try to arouse his anger. We question him. We, we give him counsel. We question him. We don't praise him. We, we do things to grieve him. Job, no one in their right mind would even try to do anything to make this animal in the least bit angry. But humans stand before God and have no problem questioning him and arousing his anger. That's true. That's true. He says this at the ending of chapter, or verse 10. Who then is he that can stand before me? How small do you feel with this sea creature, Job? You wouldn't dare anger at Job. You'd be on your face, Job. Isn't this the call? Isn't this the mantra that we have picked up through Romans 9 and on? Something like this. Who are you, O oh man? You see, this is the doxology that Paul's ending Romans 11 with. We're here, and he's there. Until we get that, nothing of the gospel is truly amazing. Who is it that can stand before me? Who is it, Job? Well, let, me, let me do a little side note to Revelation. In Revelation 6, that chapter ends with this. It's the great day of wrath. And they are hiding and they're crying out that the rocks fall on them to hide them from the wrath and the anger of the one who is coming, God. And it says, who can stand? Who can stand against this wrath? Who can stand against this God? Who can stand against his retribution and judgment? That's how chapter 6 ends in Revelation Go to chapter 7. Then you have the picture of those who can stand. Those are the ones who have been sealed by God. They're the ones that are around the throne. How can you stand before God? On your own? Something that you've brought to Him? Never in a million years. You stand because of Him. He gives you the gift to stand before him in his righteousness and his glory. Job, who can stand? Now here comes where he quotes. Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. What are you going to give me that I don't have? What are you going to do for me? that I would ever be indebted to you. That's what he asked Job at the end of this. Job, you've questioned why I'm doing this maybe? You're questioning why you thought maybe you, you shouldn't have got as bad as this in life because you've been really pretty faithful to me? 
Job, I don't care what you think. You've done nothing for me to give you anything. I owe you nothing. Do we agree with that? He owes us nothing. If God decided to take our breath away tomorrow, he doesn't owe us any. He doesn't owe us the next breath. There's nothing I've done to get the next breath. Not one thing. And every time I breathe in, you know what that is? It's an act of mercy. That's an act of grace. There's nothing I've done that he should keep me alive on this planet on my own merits. And if he wants the honest reality, on my own merit, I should have already been dead. Because the wages of sin is death. And if you want what I deserve and what I've brought him, here's what I've brought to the table. I've brought my sin. That's what I've brought God. Here. Is this worthy of salvation? Is this worthy of goodness? No. I've brought him nothing. This is what Paul's saying at the end of Romans 11 as he has went through the whole letter to the Romans about the depths of our depravity, the hopelessness that we have. But justification is of God, not of ourselves. What is the benefit of justification? What is the election, the calling, the predestination, his grafting in? What has any human being ever brought to God to deserve that? That's why he closes this chapter with it. He has labored this point. He has brought us all the way through. And at the end of this, he says, who has ever brought anything to God that he would deserve what we've just laid out in this letter? The arrogance of man. Listen to this. God is showing Job that God does not answer to anyone. God is God. God is autonomous. That means that this word autonomous means that God is independent. He acts independently from any external constraints that would be imposed on him from anyone. That means that God is self-governing. God is self-ruling. God is self-determining over himself. So therefore, he is under no obligation to anyone outside of himself to do what others would impose that he should do to them or for them. Simply means this. God does what God wants to do. How many times have we quoted that in our lives? Psalm 115, verse 3. For our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. That's the godness of God. We don't owe him, he, or he doesn't owe us anything. He's not under our constraints to do things for us or give us things or answer all the prayers that we do. He's not, he's not under that. He's self-ruling. He's a sovereign God over all the universe. He's not dependent on anyone for anything. And let me just say a few moments on this. That includes salvation. That's the whole point of this letter to the Romans. Let me ask you a question. I want you to honestly stop and think about this. I want you to go back to the golden chain, and I want you to think about this. Let's ask it, each one individually, and you can answer this in your hearts. What did you ever do for God to elect you and choose you before the foundation of the world? What did you bring in your hand that says, look at me. This is why you should. Look, look at me. Look, here it is. Look what I'm bringing you. 
What have you ever done that God, from the foundation of the world, would look at you and choose you and love you? Can you name anything that, he, that you've done? Can you name anything that you've brought to that? What about this? What have you ever given to God or ever done to God that God would owe you the, the, the privilege of being predestinated to His glory? These are all rhetorical. But you know what? They're not rhetorical in the sense that for a long time I believed some of this. Let me show you how simple this goes. I, say, I said that we read the text at the start, and I said that that sounds ridiculous, that what would we bring to God? Let me give you an example. God, the only reason you saved me is because of this wonderful choice that I made for you. I was smarter than him, and him, and him, and her, and I brought you my decision. And without that decision, God, you couldn't have saved me. Here's my decision on a silver platter. Now you owe me salvation. How stupid is that? I believe it goes back to what he's asking Job in the Old Testament. Who do you think you are to think that you could bring anything to me as a holy God that I would be indebted to give you anything? If I'm waiting on your choice, then guess what? If it's your decision that gets this, and I'm dependent on you, and I can't save you without your own personal decision, unless you ask me into your heart, then guess what? God is dependent on you. And now God is not giving you a free gift. He's given you what you've merited. He's given you what you've earned. He's given you something in return for something that you did. See, it sounds silly when we say it at the start. We've all lived that life. How crazy is that? God, you can't save me. <laughs> You're omnipotent. You are God over all. You do what you please. And if you wanted to save me, I'm just going to tell you, come again some other time. And only God, only God, if you are lucky enough to get my choice. If you are lucky enough for me to open that door of my heart and let you come in, then I've been bright and I've been smart and I've made a righteous decision. And now you know what, God? You know what better be on the other end of my decision? Your salvation. It's hard to even say that anymore and to think that I believe that what did you ever bring to God that he would save you this is the point Paul is making what did you ever do for God to call you effectually what did you ever do ask Lazarus what he did ask Paul what he did ask yourself what did I bring in my hand to God that this shepherd would look at me and say, oh, yeah, that guy right there, her, that's, yeah, that's it. Come on. You've done so, come on. What have you ever done that he would call you 
What have you ever brought to him that he would repay you? If you've done something, then he owes you. And now he's indebted to you. God does not save us because he owes a debt. God saved us and paid our debt. It's just the opposite. He does not owe us anything. He's not in debt to us. He's not a debtor to anyone. What did you ever do? What did you ever bring in your hand? We've labored this point a lot. What have you ever done for God to look at you and declare you righteous via justification? Well, God, here, look at all these astounding things that I've done in my sin nature. Look at this uh, unregenerated heart. Look, look, at, look at all this good stuff I'm bringing to you, and now you must justify me. I brought a cold heart of stone to the game, and he found me and took that stone heart out and changed me. And then he looked at me, and he legally declared me righteous. That if you're sitting here tonight and you are a true, regenerated child of God, that God has declared you righteous, and he says that is a gift. It can't be earned if it's a gift. And if it's a gift, and he's declared you righteous, and that's a gift, and he's justified you, which is a gift, you all know about those gifts, right? They're irrevocable. If God has justified you one time in your life, when you die, you're justified because it's his justification. That's what Romans 8 says. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? No one. Why? It is God who justifies. He's the justifier. What have you ever done? Me and Mark have talked about this a thousand times. Mark, have you ever brought anything to the table where God would declare you righteous? <laughs> you don't even have to ask him twice. You don't, have to think, you don't have to think about it. But how many times have we thought we did? Look, God. Well, look at me. He owes us nothing. He does not owe us the election, the predestination. He doesn't owe us the call. He doesn't owe us justification. And he sure in the world doesn't owe us glorification. He does not owe us the privilege of dwelling with him forever. What have you done? What have you brought to God that he would allow you into his kingdom? On your own merit, what have you done? It all starts with the foreknowing. The foreknowing ends with the glorification. He foreknew, he predestined, he justified, he uh, called, he justified, he glorified. You'll see that it's he. <laughs> what have you ever brought? This is what Paul's saying. He's laid out this whole doctrine in Romans, uh, the book of Romans, the letter to the Romans, and he says everything is from God, including salvation. Let me read this in Romans chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. You may remember this. It says this, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now listen to this part. Now to the one who works, 
His wage is not credited as favor, but as what is due. If you've done anything for God to merit something to you, then it's no longer a gift, it's an obligation. We've used this example before. I work today. When I get paid, I'm not going to look at that paycheck and say, thank you for this gift. I didn't deserve this, but you've given it to me. No, why are they paying me? Because I did something to merit the wage. It is what is due to me. This is what Paul states in Romans 4. If we work for the salvation, if it's something that has in us to do, then it's no longer a gift. Now God is in debt to us to give us something we've done. That's what Paul is saying here in Romans 4. To the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. One is works, one is faith. One is God, one is you. There's not an in-between. It can't be, well, I'm doing this, and then God's doing this other half. It's either all or nothing. It is God who does it. It is God who declares and decrees all things. It is God. No one has ever brought anything to God for God to repay them. We have to remember that in all aspects of life, but also in salvation. He's autonomous over salvation. Doesn't know anybody, anyone. No one has ever merited salvation. This speaks to God's mercy. That's all it speaks to. If you've done nothing to do it, and you've not been good enough to earn it or keep it, and God foreknew you before you were even born, then that speaks to God's mercy. Romans 9.18, he says, So then he has mercy on whom he desires. Not because they've merited it, but because of whom he desires. And he hardens whom he desires. The fact that we brought nothing to this salvation on our own merit speaks only to the mercy and the grace of God. It is not as God is repaying us, or he's in debt to us, or now he owes us this. It is strictly that God lays out mercy. You've not earned it. But here's mercy. That's the beautifulness of this gospel. This is why Paul's heart is about to explode. Our salvation is something that's never owed to us on our own merit. We've brought nothing to it, but it is all from God. If he showed mercy on no one, that's perfect. If he wanted to show mercy on no one, that would be his perfect will. He could do that. And you know what no human being could ever say? That's not fair. Here's how the conversation quickly goes. I've had this conversation many times. Do you believe that anybody deserves heaven? No. Do you believe that God would be perfectly just to send every sinner to hell? Yes. Do you believe that God has to show mercy equally to everyone? Of course. You just told me that everyone deserves hell. And the fact that he saves one is mercy. There's nothing unfair about that. We've done nothing. Can you say that? Can you honestly say this? Because this does not come from an unregenerated heart. Can you say what R.C. said? If God put you in hell tomorrow, that he would be unjust. Until you can get that, 
You don't understand mercy and grace. You've done nothing, absolutely nothing, for this God who needs nothing from any human being to freely give this gift. This is what Paul's saying. I just want to spend a few moments on how this applies to us applicably outside of salvation. I want to just briefly talk about the story in Luke 15, which I believe we call it the story of the prodigal son. I think it should be the story of the older brother. Because if you look at this story, we've preached on this before, that God is using parables to really get to the heart of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And all of these parables are directed straight to the Pharisee. So what he does in Luke 15 is something that's beautiful. And in verse 11, he starts with it. And he starts to say that this man, he starts to describe this, this son that's going to leave. And he, he starts to lay out everything that would be offensive to the Pharisee. So he says that he went on a journey to a distant country. And we see that symbolism, that term being used in the Bible, which means going out of Israel or to Egypt, to a different country. And you remember that they thought they were the only people that God would ever save. So to go out to a different country, you were guilty of leaving your people to the Gentiles who were unworthy. So the guy goes into a different country, right? And he sells everything he has. He's, he's, diso- he's dishonored his father to them. And then he ends up with the pigs. Why the pigs? We know the importance of the pigs to the Jew and to the Pharisee and all. Now he's wandering in the middle of those. What God is saying here is this, because the Pharisees are, here's their whole beef. They are saying, how can you save those dirty people? How could you have mercy on the tax collector? How could you have mercy on the prostitute, the amorettes, the dirty people? How can you do that, Jesus? And then here comes Luke 15. He tells the story of the sheep. He tells the story of the coin. But then he goes to the prodigal and he says, listen, here's who you are. You're the older brother. And this guy right here that has went out, this son, that's everything that you hate about the people that I'm saving. I'm going to make this prodigal son so filthy and so dirty and so despised in your eyes because that's how you're viewing these people that are coming and I'm saving. And the older brother is what the story is revolving around. That the older brother who has been there with Jesus the whole time has heard the words, but what is his whole complaint? I wanted that celebration too. You didn't give me that pomp and circumstance. This guy who's out there, dirty as he can be, he gets it all. I've been in your house the whole time, and now you're not going to give me this? That's not fair. What they're saying, Jesus is saying, listen, you've been around me the whole time, but you did not hear my words. You can't hear my words. And you didn't want me. You wanted the gift. You wanted the pomp. You wanted the circumstance. He wanted, he wanted the fatted calf. He wanted all this stuff. He didn't want the father. He wanted the glory. He's like, I want this. You didn't give me this celebration. Father's not mentioned. He's like, well, listen, listen, the calf has been killed. You can go eat it. Yeah, but you didn't do it for me. I didn't get celebrated, which is what all the Pharisees wanted to do, is be celebrated. You see, he didn't care about the father. And they didn't care about Jesus. They cared about themselves. 
and the glory that they showed. Right? The long robes, the fancy prayers. They wanted to be seen. And now this dirty person, the person that is right in front of them being saved by God, the tax collectors, the, 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 the prostitutes, etc. Those are the dirty people that are represented as the prodigal. And now they're jealous. And you can almost hear it in their tone. Listen to this. Here's what he says. In verse 29 of Luke 15, listen to this. He's talking about the older brother. In verse 28, it says, But he came angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. Remember, the son has come. The son that was dead, now he's alive. He's welcomed by the father. The, young, the older brother gets jealous. They've killed the calf. The, 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 the party's beginning. But the older brother became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father began, came out and began to pleading with him. Listen to the older brother. And I'm going to tie this in. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I've been serving you, and I've never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. Do you hear it? I kept all the rules. You owe me better. You owe me. I kept all the commands. Now you owe me, Father. Have you ever done that? Listen to how simple this can go. I wrote some examples there. Listen to this. God, I come to church every time the doors are open. You owe me better than what's in my life right now. How dare this thing come in my life? I come to church. I keep your commands. You tell me to come and I come. That's not fair, God. I bring you my attendance. I bring you my time. You owe me better than this. That's what Job was saying. This, I didn't deserve this because I was doing this for God. See how quickly we can do it? Has something ever came in your life? Has something ever been unfair, quote-unquote, in your life? And you and I begin to say this, but God, the person who doesn't go to church, look how blessed they're becoming. The person who doesn't go to church, nothing ever comes into their life. I look at all my friends, and they don't come to church, and they never have the heartache that I do. God, you owe me because I kept the rules. I brought this to you, God. Now you owe me. I read my Bible every day. I try my best to follow everything you teach, God. And now this is in my life. God, if I knew that I could have this in my life with reading your word, why do I even read? This is what Job is saying. I read. I try to seek you. I try to learn about you. And it's just devastation or it's heartache. And I don't know what to do. God, you owe me this. God, you tell me to pray all the time, and I pray all the time. And every time I pray, it seems like the opposite happens, and the heartaches keep coming. And Lord, it doesn't seem like you're anywhere in this situation. And God, that's not fair, because I've prayed, and I've prayed, and I've prayed, and I've prayed. And you tell me to pray without ceasing, and now I've brought my time, and I've brought my prayer, and I've brought my attention to you. And God, now you owe me. 
God, you owe me. I give you all my time, God. You owe me better than what's going on right now. I've heard this, I heard this analogy. I heard this one time in a message, and I thought it was, I thought it applies here too. You think about how many young married couples try to have children, and they can't. And I wonder how many times those Christian couples sit in the church and you understand the struggle behind the scenes. And maybe they've prayed for years. God, we go to church all the time. God, we've waited for marriage. We've done it all right. God, we come and we pray together. We honor you. God, we've done everything you've told us to do. And we've tried, and we've tried, and we've tried. And we don't have a child. And then their eyes just begin to wander, not too far, into the people they're around in life. And you see the people that are promiscuous and don't want a child to save their life. And just like that, children, I wonder if ever in those moments that cry would come out of their soul. God, we've done it all right. You owe us a child. You owe us better than this. You've been faithful. As heartbreaking as that is, God owes them nothing. And he owes you absolutely nothing either. If you wake up tomorrow and everything you have is gone, let us not look to the heavens and say, God, how could you do that? God, we've been learning. We've been growing. God, we spend hours in your word. You owed me better than this. Have you ever done that? We do it in the material things in life. We do it in the circumstances of life. But we also do it in our salvation, like we mentioned. It's on all aspects that we do this. I did this, therefore you owe me. God owes us nothing. Absolutely nothing. That's why his grace is so amazing. You didn't, you didn't deserve it. I didn't deserve it. God did not have to give you grace. And he did not have to give you mercy. Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 10 as we close. says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, 
according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is working in the sons of the disobedient. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, what did you deserve? What did you say you deserved? Wrath. What did you bring to the situation but the deservement of wrath? But here's the difference maker in the whole thing. That everything is from God. We're going to talk about that on Sunday. That from him are all things, including grace, including salvation, including the gift of, that he gives us freely. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of his great love, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. How have you been saved? Grace. And I know you all been in church long enough to know this definition of it. What is grace? Unmerited favor. What does unmerited mean? I'll let you ponder on that one. It's not what gets taught a lot. I'll just tell you. You didn't earn it. You didn't do anything for it. There was no merit. You know, that's, sometimes there's just certain words that are a lot easier to exegete than others. Unmerited, let me tell you, that, that just means you didn't deserve it or earn it. It is by grace that you've been saved. You didn't bring anything in your hand. God gave you grace. He gave you mercy. And he could have gave you justice. That's your two options, justice or mercy. If you're a saved, regenerated person, he chose to give you mercy and grace. That's how you're saved. Let us never forget that. Let us never just gloss over that verse. We have said it ad nauseum over our Christian lives. We have said it to the point we don't even know what it means anymore in the church. It is by grace that you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us in, with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace. We talked about this on Sunday. Oh, the riches of the depth of his knowledge and wisdom. Here it comes in his kindness toward us. Remember, there's either kindness or hostility. God has given us kindness to those who he's called. Listen to this in verse 8 as we close. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. Who gets the glory in salvation? God. It's by grace and not of you. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works so that no one can boast. I will not stand at the throne of God and say, I am here because I made a great decision while that person didn't. I'm here because I was a little smarter. I was here because I was a little wiser. I will never say that. I will lift my hands as I'm on my face <laughs> because that's where we'll be. 
And I will say I'm here because of his grace. Because of him. I brought nothing. He brought it to me. So no one will boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. If you look on your last page, I thought it was fitting to put the words to my favorite hymn, Rock of Ages. I've asked you at the start, what is in your hand? I think the song says it perfectly in verse 3. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Never one time in your life, never one time in any human being's life have they ever stood before God and said, I'm going to give you this, and now you owe me. God is in debt to no one. What could you ever bring? The answer is nothing. I told you we could have stopped earlier. What could you ever bring? Nothing. All is from God by his own choice, his own good pleasure. It's not about us. It's all about him. I'm going to read this as we close. The last verses again. Verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? I'm excited about this one. For from him, and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Guys, let us not forget this text. You've never brought anything to him that he would owe you in your salvation, in your life, in your prayers, in anything. And when to you can understand that God owes you nothing, you don't understand the grace of God. There's a lot in these verses, isn't there? These are power-packed. Go back and read Job. Look at the content. Look how he pulls it all together. Again, high theology of God equals high praise of God. And this is what we're trying to drive home in every one of these verses. So, let us pray. Shall we? God, what could we ever boast of in ourselves? God, I pray that tonight we would be humbled like Job. God, if there's any arrogance in our hearts or our minds to think how absurd it is that we could ever bring something to you, God, that you would owe us. We've never given you advice or counsel. We've never brought you good things on our own account. God, we've never brought you righteousness on our own. God, we are hopeless without you. God, there's nothing we bring in our hand. We are in debt to you, not the other way around. God, please show us this. God, please, I pray 
that tonight you would move in our souls to know this one thought, that God, you owe us absolutely nothing at any time in our lives. So God, we throw our hands in the air and our souls bow to you and we say thank you for your free gifts. Thank you for grace. Thank you for mercy. Thank you for election. Thank you for predestination. Thank you for your calling. Thank you for your justification. And God, thank you for the promise that we will dwell with you one day. And we've done nothing to enter that city. To you be the glory forever and ever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.